This is episode 299 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help power the show and get access to bonus episodes at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. If you'd like to go beyond the episode and really try out some of the history you learn about on our show, then consider becoming a member of That Shakespeare Life. We offer activity kits that let you cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. You can learn more at CassidyCash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Kolkovich, a professor of Shakespeare at Ohio State and author of the Elizabethan Country House Entertainment. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Because everybody recognizes that a Marian victory in, in the civil wars, if Mary can reclaim her throne, that will represent an advance for the French interest in Europe. It will represent an advance for the Catholic interest in Europe. Conversely, a victory for James and his supporters means triumph for the reformers, for the Protestant interest in Europe, and also an expansion of English influence. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. William Shakespeare was just two years old when Mary, Queen of Scots, was removed from power in 1567. The Queen was put under confinement in Lochleven Castle and forced to abdicate the throne in favor of her young son, James VI, the future James I of England. Mary and her supporters, however, did not go quietly. Mary would escape from prison one year later and incite her followers to confront their enemies in a vicious civil war known as the Marian Civil War. Mary herself left Scotland after the Battle of Langside in 1568, seeking refuge from her cousin Elizabeth I. Mary would be placed under confinement in England for 19 years until she was finally executed in 1587 when William Shakespeare was 23 years old and just starting to make a name for himself in London. Mary was a powerful figure and her story from queen to executed criminal played a prominent role in the cultural backdrop of William Shakespeare's formative years, making it an important event to understand when you're trying to get to know what life was like for William Shakespeare. Our guest this week is the author of an article on the Marian Civil War history for the Center for Scottish Culture at the University of Dundee, Dr. Alan Kennedy. Alan Kennedy is lecturer in Scottish history at the University of Dundee. His research focuses on the early modern period, especially the 17th century, and he has a particular interest in the political and social topics from this period. Find links to more information on Alan and his latest research projects in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Alan. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hello. Thank you very much for the invitation to be here. I'm very excited to talk to you. What was the relationship between England and Scotland at the start of the Marian Civil War? Well, it's complicated and it requires a, a little bit of prehistory. So, so bear with me here. As we might know, or as many of your listeners might know, Scotland and England had by the middle of the 16th century had quite a long history of not, not being the best of friends. There's, there's a long history of, of, of enmity there stretching back 
at least to the Civil War, the uh, Wars of Independence, I should say, at the uh, in the late 13th, early 14th centuries. But recently, Scotland and England had gone through a kind of acute phase of that uh, that hostility during the 1540s, when Henry VIII of England decides that he wants to marry the infant Mary, Queen of Scots, who, who comes to the throne as a six-day-old baby in 1542. He wants to marry her to his son and heir, Edward, the future Edward VI. Scots initially agree to that, but then get a little bit nervous because they realise that if that happens, Scotland is inevitably going to be absorbed into a kind of greater English empire. So they try to back out. The result is a war between England and Scotland known as the Rough Wooing, a sort of dark joke there about Henry trying to woo the Scots by, uh, by making war on them. That phase of hostility lasts throughout the 1540s and into the 1550s. And it's par for the course in one sense, it's war between England and Scotland, that had happened before. What makes it more complicated is two additional factors which are really important for understanding where things stand at the start of the Marian Civil War. The first of those is the presence of France, because the Scottish response to Henry VIII's invasion had been turned to France, gets France's traditional ally of Scotland, so turn to France for support. That eventually leads to French intervention on Scottish soil, French boots on the ground, if you like, fighting English forces and English allied forces, Scots who are allied to the England in, in Scotland as well. And that continues up until the, the end of the 1550s. The other complicating factor is religion, because this, of course, is the middle of the 16th century. This is the age of Reformation. And increasingly, Scotland is while remaining a Catholic country for uh, right up until the end of the 1550s, there, there's a big debate within Scotland about should we go Protestant? Should we join the reformers? And that becomes mixed up with the conflict. Those who support Henry VIII and England increasingly come to be identified as Protestants, or at least people who are in favour of religious reform. People who support France and the French themselves obviously become associated with Roman Catholicism. So when we get to the actual Reformation in Scotland, which happens in 1560, just before Mary, Queen of Scots, comes back to Scotland, um, having been in France um, for most of the rough wooing as a way of trying to keep her safe, Scotland turns Protestant, and therefore we have a move towards that pro-Protestant, pro-English side of things, and French influence and Catholic influence begins to decline. All of which means, and I apologise for how complicated this has been, all of which means that when we get to the start of the Marian Civil War in 1567, um, the relationship between England and Scotland has moved through that period of intense hostility, and we're getting towards Scotland gradually evolving into a kind of English client state because that pro-English, pro-Protestant group has emerged uh, dominant thanks to the Reformation. So all really complicated, all really messy, but the outcome of it all is that we, we're in a situation where Scotland and England no longer enemies, really, technically in 1567, and maybe emerge, evolving into something a bit more like a kind of client-master relationship with England being the dominant party. Why was Mary, Queen of Scots, being asked to abdicate in favor of her son when he was just an infant and unable mm -hmm. to rule without representation? Why weren't they happy with her just being his representative? Yeah. Well, of course, the first thing to say is that, of course, she's not being asked to abdicate. She's not being given any choice in, in, in the matter. <laughs> yeah, we sh I should have phrased that a little better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the question stands, on the face of it, asking a mature, experienced ruler 
to step aside in favour of a baby. I mean, James is, is not even one when his mother is overthrown. And that doesn't see, seem to make an awful lot of sense. So there are, there's obviously a serious question um, to ask there. And I think there are lots of different answers. On one level, there's a basic sense of discomfort with having a female ruler. The 16th century is remarkable in European history for producing a huge number of female rulers, particularly towards the middle of the century across the continent. Scotland is part of that with, with Mary, who'd come to the throne in 1542 and, and comes into her personal rule in 1561. And a lot of people are basically uncomfortable with that. You can point, for example, to John Knox, the Protestant Scottish reformer, um, who wrote a very famous pamphlet called, well, not a pamphlet, a book, in fact, it's, it's quite a long text, uh, called The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women, which is what it sounds like. It's a, a denunciation of the idea of female kingship. So that's one issue. There, there's a basic discomfort there. Another issue is that, as I mentioned earlier on, Scotland had turned Protestant as a result of the Reformation in 1560, or, or the, had begun the process of becoming Protestant, at least. Mary is still a Catholic having grown up in France. So there's that tension as well. Can we have a Catholic monarch? Can we trust a Catholic monarch not to try and undo the, the good work of reform that, that we've just been through? So there are those kind of background issues which help explain why some people are just generally uh, uncomfortable with having Mary on the throne. But there are also much more immediate issues to do with things that Mary had actually done, particularly in the final year of her, her reign. I think we can point to, to, to a few missteps, mainly over who she gets married to. Her second marriage, she'd originally been to Francis II of France, but he died um, before she came back to Scotland. Once she's back in Scotland, her second marriage is to Henry Stuart Lord Darnley in 1565. That proves a disastrous marriage because Darnley is a, a spoiled narcissist and proves to be an absolutely woeful consort for Mary, who also has a knack of annoying huge swathes of the Scottish body politic. So he quickly becomes very, very unpopular, and that plants seeds of doubt as to Mary's reading of characters, her ability to choose appropriate consorts, appropriate servants, what have you. Um, and in particular, it alienates uh, somebody called the Earl of Mar, James Stuart, uh, sorry, the, the Earl of Murray, I should say, James Stuart, Earl of Murray, who's Mary's half-brother and had been a really important advisor in the first few years of her personal rule. And that will be important later on as we talk about the civil, uh, the Marian Civil War. So that's a problem and becomes more of a problem in 1567 because Darnley is murdered in February of 1567. By this point, Mary and Darnley are pretty much estranged. Nonetheless, the murder of the Queen's husband, who has the title of king, although um, they're not really the powers of, of, of a king, at least not in practice, the murder of somebody like that is a really serious issue. And the problem for Mary is that the person who's, who's suspected, widely suspected of murdering Darnley is the Earl of Bothwell. And Mary's response to that murder and to the suspicion of Bothwell is really strange because what she does is she is essentially throws her support behind Bothwell. Um, she treats Bothwell as a friend, as an ally, as a really trusted and close advisor, to the extent that the two of the pair actually get married a few months after the murder of Darnley in, April, in May 1567, Mary and Bothwell marry. There's all sorts of questions about how far Mary um, chooses to do that. There are some suspicions uh, that she's um, she's forced into it. Certainly she's abducted by Bothwell, although some contemporaries suggest that was all staged so that she could get, find a way of, of engineering the marriage. The point is, though, that Mary and Bothwell get married. That horrifies 
virtually everybody of any consequence in Scotland and causes them to rise up against her in order to get rid of Bothwell and his influence. The result of that is that Mary is, is confronted by uh, an armed convocation of her lieges at Carberry Hill in June 1567. There's going to be a plan is for the pair to have a battle, but actually Mary's side surrenders before any battle takes place. Her, the leaders of the anti-Bothwell faction take Mary captive and decide that the best thing they can do with her is force her to abdicate on the assumption that you'll get rid of all the woman who's made all these silly mistakes. You'll solve all of those deeper structural problems about religion, about female rule I mentioned earlier. And as a lovely little bonus, you'll have a one-year-old on the throne who obviously can't rule, so you can rule through him. You can um, run the country in his name. So all of those factors come together in the middle of 1567, and I think that explains why Mary is overthrown in, in favour of what appears on the face of it, not terribly suitable replacement. Massive amount of drama there going on. Seriously, more <laughs> more ins and outs and twists and turns than like a soap opera, I think, going I think on there. So, yes. What happened to the baby during this conflict? I mean, the future James VI was an infant at this time while her mother's uh-huh. leading, while his mother is leading armies and all of this craziness. Was he with Mary for all of this or being kept somewhere else? Who was taking care of him? And why did he not have a father figure going on at this time? Mary last sees James in at the start of 1567. So while she's still queen, before she is overthrown, she never meets him again. So uh, in, in the course of the civil wars, in the course of, of his his youth and, and adulthood, she never again sees her son. During the civil war itself, which starts with, with Mary's overthrow in 1567 and, and runs up to 1573, James is obviously, as you say, an infant for, for, for the entirety of that. So he is not personally involved in any way, shape or form in the conflict. Instead, he spends virtually all of this time living at Stirling Castle and he he's basically locked up there by his supporters, the so-called King's Men, as they call themselves, um, for the duration of the conflict. Um, you mentioned a father figure there. Now, obviously, James doesn't have a father at this point because Darnley had been murdered in 1567, um, Mary's second husband, who was the father of of James. What he does have, though, is a nobleman who is uh, given charge of him. This is John Erskine, Earl of Mar, um, who's appointed the guardian of James. He and his wife are the one who live in Stirling Castle, look after James, ensure he's being educated, ensure he's safe, uh, try to make sure that Stirling Castle is secure, all of these, these things. The government of Scotland, therefore, is being carried on by different people, by a series of regents, initially the Earl of Murray, who we talked about a moment ago, and then a series of others as James gets older. One thing to say is that the only intervention that James has in the civil wars, and obviously it's not one he um, he organises himself because he's a baby, is his coronation. Almost immediately after Mary is overthrown in 1567, James's supporters arrange for him to go through a coronation ceremony um, in Stirling. It's a bit of a a bizarre spectacle because he is a baby. You're basically putting a crown on top of a baby. The whole whole baby, the baby fits inside the crown. (laughs) It's it's, it's slightly ludicrous. And after that, James to Stirling Castle. And we pretty much don't see him again until years after the Civil War has ended, when he pre-emerges as as a youth um, to begin taking a personal role in, in Scotland. 
Mary's supporters had built up a stronghold with provisions for Mary at Dumbarton Castle. When Mary escaped Loch Leven Castle, did she go to Dumbarton and take up her cause from there? And why was she not able to stay there? I think of Dumbarton as this impenetrable place and a, mm-hmm. a great place to defend yourself against aggressors. But Mary ends up exiled in Edinburgh Castle by the end of the war. So why all the traveling around from castle to castle? Mm-hmm. What was going on there? Well, actually, I mean, the, when she escapes from Loch Leven Castle, Loch Leven had been where she'd been put after Carberry Hill. She escapes from there in May 1568. And she does indeed head towards Dumbarton Castle. You're, you're right, that had been kept. That that, that was still, the, the governor of Dumbarton was still loyal to Mary. The castle had been held for her. So the king's men hadn't been able to, to capture it. So she does head, head towards Dumbarton Castle. And that involves think of Loch Leven, that's on, on uh, towards the, uh, the east coast of Scotland, and Barton Castle is on the west coast. So she's going across the country. And as she goes, she gathers an army of about 6,000 men. Um, and she does this very quickly. Within about a fortnight, she's got an army of 6,000 or so men en route to Dumbarton Castle. The idea is she'll get there, she'll hole up in Dumbarton, which, as you say, is, is pretty much impenetrable. Uh, not completely, but, but pretty much. She'll wait there while her supporters from around Scotland, because one thing to bear in mind here is that the faction that had overthrown Mary that had pushed through her abdication is a very small minority faction. And the balance of opinion within Scotland probably is still in favour of Mary being queen. So her thinking is sit up in Sydenham Barton Castle, wait for everybody to come to you, and then she can sally out and sweep her enemies away and, and reclaim her throne. The reason she doesn't get to Dumbarton Castle is because her enemies also gather an army. It's a smaller army. It's about 4,000 men at its peak, but it's enough to engage Mary in a battle at Langside, uh, which is a, just just south of Glasgow. Nowadays, it's within the city of Glasgow, but in, this, in the 16th century, it's just outside Glasgow. And Langside, despite the fact that, that Mary's men have a numerical advantage, is a disastrous defeat for her. Her army is absolutely destroyed by the smaller army loyal to James VI. And so the reason she doesn't get to Dumbarton Castle is that she's defeated in battle before she can do so. And she has to retire after Langside and try and think what to do next. Now, you mentioned that uh, she ends up being holed up in in Edinburgh Castle. In fact, she doesn't. Um, She does something else. And I think that might bring us on to the next question um, that um, that you have lined up, because that this this takes us really to the crux of the uh, of the issue, I think. Well, I'll move on to the next question because I'm excited (laughs) to get this clarified. We know ultimately that Mary lost her fight and had to seek refuge in England. However, explain for us this turn of events. Was Mary Mm. trying, what was she trying to accomplish and what happened that marked the end of the war officially, causing Mary's supporters to lay down their arms and the queen herself Mm. to acknowledge, okay, the fight's over? Yeah, well, that takes us back to the Battle of Langside which incidentally happened 11 days after Mary had escaped from Loch Leven Castle. So it's 11 days that it takes her to gather that army and then fight a battle and lose a battle. And she has the decision to make after the Battle of Langside. She could retire, regroup, try and raise another army and continue pressing her cause. What she decides to do instead, immediately after Langside, is flee to England. So that flight to England doesn't actually take place you know, later in the Civil War, when she's had a chance to think about things and she suffered some reverses, it's virtually her first step in the conflict is to flee south to England after Langside. Her thinking is probably that the ruler of England at this time is Elizabeth I, a fellow female ruler. 
um, a relative of Mary's. Elizabeth and, and Mary are cousins, not first cousins, but, but not massively distant cousins either. So our thinking is probably Elizabeth, given all those circumstances, will feel duty bound to offer support to Mary so that she can reclaim her kingdom. Unfortunately, this probably is the biggest mistake that Mary ever made in, in, in her whole life, because as well as being a relative, as well as being a fellow monarch, Elizabeth I is also extremely insecure on her throne. The Tudor claim to the throne is very weak, going back to the 15th century. Elizabeth's claim to the throne, her personal claim to the throne, is hotly contested, even more so than the general Tudor claim, because of the fact that her, her father, Henry VIII of England, had married Anne Boleyn after divorcing his first wife. Um, and there were, there were questions about how legitimate that second marriage was. The problem that Mary has is that if you're going to get rid of Elizabeth, the next in line to the English throne is none other than Mary herself. So what Mary has, has done, therefore, is present herself, put, hand herself on a plate to the one person in the whole of the world who has a vested interest in ensuring that she is under her control. So Elizabeth's response to Mary turning up on her doorstep is not to provide masses of money and men to retake Scotland. It's to put Mary in prison. And she will remain in prison for the rest of her life up until her execution um, in 1587. So to bring us back then to, to the Civil War, one of the reasons that the Civil War ends and goes the way it does with James emerging victorious is that by removing herself from Scotland and by ending up in prison, what Mary has done is made it extremely difficult for her partisans in Scotland to keep fighting. Because ultimately, what's the point? If the Queen's men, as they call themselves, win the Civil War, Queen is now in prison in England. She's not coming back. So you're fighting for a monarch who cannot take up their throne any longer. And so I think what happens is that as time passes, it becomes pretty clear that whichever side wins the Civil War, Mary is not coming back because she can't. So ultimately, what is the point in continuing to fight for her? But that doesn't mean that the war ends straight away. It actually drags on until 1573. And Mary was imprisoned after 1568. So there's like a five-year period there when the war is still happening. But increasingly, it begins to look like a mopping up operation for the king's men. It's just a case of methodically going around the country, bribing people to come back, to come on side, defeating them in battle, you can. And ultimately comes to be focused on uh, Edinburgh Castle, which by 1573 is the last stronghold in Scotland still holding out for Queen Mary. And so the, the, the civil war ends, essentially, with the king men finally capturing Edinburgh Castle in the middle of 1573 and therefore ensuring that the entirety of the kingdom is loyal to James VI. But we could make the case that actually that had been the way the wind had been blowing ever since 1568 because of Mary's decision to flee to England, which was ultimately, I think it's fair to say, fatal for her cause in Scotland. Well, we've mentioned James Moray a couple of times as yeah. the representative for James VI, and I would like to tell his part in this story. Tell us what happened to him. You said he was assassinated by whom and why was his death significant? Yeah, well, I mean, James Stuart, Earl of Murray, is the illegitimate half-brother of Mary, Queen of Scots. He's he's the, the son of James V of Scotland, but through a partner other than James's wife. Instead of being older than Mary, he's also quite politically experienced. And at the start of her personal reign, when she comes back to Scotland from France in 1561, he's a really important advisor and supporter of hers. But after the marriage to Darnley in 1565 turns against her and becomes the, the leading proponent of, of what will later become the king's men. 
And after Mary is deposed in 1567 and James uh, goes through his coronation, it's Murray who becomes the regent. So he's he's the, the de facto ruler of Scotland in the name of James VI. And as regent, he seems to have been fairly good. He's fairly energetic. He is um, certainly a relatively successful military leader. He really seems to be um, putting a lot of effort and, and, and making a genuine um, effort to, to run Scotland well on behalf of the king. But you're right, he ends up being assassinated in 1570, January 1570. So he's only regent for just over 18 months or so, um, if that, in fact, just over a year before his assassination. That happens at Linlithgow. He's, he's on a visit to Linlithgow, which is a, a few miles uh, to the west of Edinburgh, and he is, he's assassinated there. What makes his assassination interesting is, is how it happens. He's killed by one of the king's men, a man called, one of the Queen's supporters, I should say, a man called James Hamilton of Bothwell Hall. But the way he assassinates Murray is by shooting him from a, uh, a house uh, on the high street, literally leaning out a window and shoots, a shoots Murray with a firearm. The reason that's of interest is because it's the this appears to be the first political assassination, certainly in Scottish history, using a firearm. And as far as I'm aware, although people will correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's the first assassination of a head of government anywhere in the world using a firearm. So in that sense, it's it's a, it's a small and slightly macabre claim to fame for uh, for Murray and for Hamilton and Bothwell Hall that this is the first political assassination using um, a firearm. Which is probably why it was able to pull it off that way, I would think, because, I mean, there's a couple of mentions of handguns in Shakespeare's plays, but even those mm -hmm. are surprising to Shakespeare scholars because it really wasn't a widely available mm. weapon at this time. No, no, it's not. I mean, it, they will become much more widespread firearms as we get into the 17th century. But, but at this period, they're expensive, they're cumbersome, they're generally used for kind of heavy duty military activity. Personal firearms um, are, are unusual and using them in this way is obviously unexpected. So I think you're right. The, the, the fact that this is, if you like, an innovative method of assassination um, helps explain how it can happen at all. Because Murray, of course, has guards. He's not wandering around the town, the streets of Lilithgow on his own. He has guards. There's a large retinue of people with him. But should, taking pot shots at him from, from a house is not had not been expected and therefore it's able to to come to pass and poor Murray ends up bleeding to death on the streets of Linlithgow. So explain how these events would have impacted the life of William Shakespeare or someone like him living in London at this time. Was the Marian Civil War being reported on in England through pamphlets or broadsides and would this event have been a cultural event the world was watching go down? Something similar to uh, right now I think we're all kind of keeping tabs on the situation between Ukraine and Russia at the moment. So oh. it, was it that kind of awareness going on or no? Well, well, yeah, I mean, the middle of the 16th century is kind of remarkable in Scottish history because Scotland is is suddenly sort of centre stage almost in, in European, European affairs for all sorts of reasons, mainly tied up with religion. You know, we talked about the Reformation earlier on, but also that wider geopolitical conflict between France and England. Because everybody recognises that a Marian victory in, in the civil wars, if Mary can reclaim her throne, that will represent an advance for the French interest in Europe. It will represent an advance for the Catholic interest in Europe. Conversely, a victory for James and his supporters means triumph for the reformers, for the Protestant interest in Europe, and also an expansion of English influence. England at the start of the 16th century is a very minor European power. It's beginning to really make its, its presence felt. And 
a victory for James in the Civil War is going to help underline that sense that England is becoming powerful, is, is expanding its sphere of influence. So from that perspective, yes, there is a really strong English interest, geopolitical interest, and cultural one, religious one as well, in the Civil War and in how it, uh, how, how it pans out. There's certainly evidence as well that both sides in the Civil War put significant resources and thought into their propaganda efforts. And we certainly know that the King's Men are producing lots of pamphlet material arguing to a reading public across Europe, including in England, why they have overthrown Mary, why it was the right thing to do, why James is the rightful monarch. And the King, the Queen's Men seem to be doing the same thing as well. We, we don't have quite so much of, of their material surviving, um, but we know that they're they're they are making this effort as well. So that means for a kind of literate reading public in England, there is both a strong interest in the Civil War and there's lots and lots of reading material there that you can consume to learn about it. And this is all underlined by what the English government does immediately after Mary comes to England in 1568. We mentioned how they clap her in irons, metaphorically speaking. She's never actually in irons, but they put her, they put her in prison. That's a kind of uncomfortable position to be in. She's an anointed monarch. Do you really want to be imprisoning an anointed monarch? So what the English government does is sort of puts Mary on trial at the end of 1568. I mean, it's not called that. It's an, it's an inquiry. But effectively, this is a kind of trial in disguise to discover whether Mary's overthrow in Scotland was, was a legitimate thing to do a legitimate thing for the Scots to have done. Um, so representatives of this new Scottish government come down and they plead their case and other witnesses are examined. Incidentally, a very interesting thing that England is holding a trial to decide if what was going on in Scotland was right or wrong, given that these are theoretically two independent kingdoms. So that's an interesting dynamic in itself. But what's more interesting is something that emerges in the course of these trials, this inquiry, is the so-called casket letters. Now, these might be familiar to some of your listeners. The casket letters are a cache of papers, um, letters and, and other items supposedly written by Mary, which are presented by the Scottish government as evidence that Mary had been complicit in the murder of Darnley back in 1567 and had been plotting with Bothwell to kill Darnley so she could marry Bothwell. And basically the casket letters are a way of proving, in inverted commas, that Mary really had it coming, that she deserved to be overthrown. Now the casket letters, a balance of opinion among historians is that they were probably forgeries. They weren't really letters that Mary had written in 1567, although some people think that they were. But the point is that the production of these casket letters, that the emergence of them during this English inquiry at the end of 1568 is, is absolutely electrifying. Everyone is enthralled by the drama of these letters and what they suggest about Mary, about her salacious private life, about um, her, her uh, disastrous rule in Scotland, all sorts of really salacious issues being touched on here. So the production of those casket letters as part of that inquiry at the end of 1568 really underlines that sense that this is a really dramatic issue that people are interested in, quite apart from all those much harder geopolitical considerations I mentioned a moment ago. So yes, somebody like, like Shakespeare, a literate member of the, of the English middle and upper classes, almost certainly would have been aware of the Marian Civil War, would have had access to reading material, and would have recognised that this is something that is of material importance to England, to England's position in the world, and to English internal security as well. It's almost like the Watergate of Shakespeare's lifetime. 
Yeah, I mean, Mary, even even her own lifetime, is is a colourful and controversial figure um, for all sorts of reasons. And, and the casket letters that I mentioned just completely underline that. And totally painter explosive. is this kind of, yeah. yeah, this femme fatale character that, that enthralls people and continues to enthrall people, actually, up to the present day. Well, there's obviously tons of history to unpack here and to explore mm-hmm. further and deeper with tons of details that we've only just touched on in today's conversation. So I wonder if you could recommend for us a good starting point. If we're new to this topic, the Marian Civil War, Marian the Casket Letters, all of it, where should we begin if we want to learn more? There are hundreds of books and articles and other things about this This. Um, a few that you could maybe start with. Um, there's a book by Jane Dawson, very eminent Scottish historian, called Scotland Reformed, 1466 to 1587, um, which is a general history of Scotland um, that covers the Civil War, a really good sort of overview of this period and, and of how it fits into the wider development of Scotland at the end of the Middle Ages and into the early modern period. If you're looking for something a bit more military, so you know the, the nitty-gritty of how the war actually is fought in Scotland, then a book called Edinburgh Under Siege, 1571 to 1573, focusing tightly on the Battle for Edinburgh by an author called Harry Potter. And yes, I'm not making, I'm not mistaken there, it is indeed Harry Potter. That's a really interesting and more military um, angle. On the other side, if you're interested in James and on the King's Men and, and that side of the conflict, then the recent first volume of Stephen J. Reed's biography of James VI, the book called The Early Life of James VI, A Long Apprenticeship, 1566 to 1585, just published this year, um, is a really good starting point for the Jacobean side of things. If you're interested in getting into some primary sources, so original material from the 16th century, then the two best starting points are probably something called the Calendar of State Papers Scotland, which is a collection of English documents that relate to Scotland, which are, have been edited and published um, in the 19th century. Or you can look at the records of the Scottish Parliament, the, an online database called Records of the Parliaments of Scotland, which contains all the proceedings of the Scottish Parliament, including Mary's parliaments in up to 1567 and the, par- the early parliaments of James VI, which are fighting the civil war against Mary. That should be plenty to be getting on with, but as I say, there are hundreds of biographies of Mary, of studies of of mid-16th century Scotland. So if you're interested in this period, there is no shortage of material uh, to keep you reading, I fear. We will place links to these resources in the show notes for today's episode, as well as to Alan's work, so you can explore that further. And I've recently started studying Scottish history for Shakespeare's lifetime specifically. And as a side note, I would suggest that you explore the history of this period written by the people in Scotland and from the Scottish side of things, not to throw any shade on England, but there are some differences and definitely some details. So if you're going to explore the Marian Civil War, I would suggest exploring it from both sides to get a complete picture. Now, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Yeah. Well, my choice might come slightly, slightly out of left field because it's not a history book. What I would take is a relatively short novel called Side the Ocean of Time. This is a novel um, which most people probably wouldn't have heard of. It's by an Arcadian author so, so, from Orkney called George Mackay Brown. And it's just a very little novel um, which is about a young boy who keeps falling asleep and having dreams. And each chapter is a description of the dreams he is having. So he ends up at one point, he's, he, his dreams transport him back to... The, the Dark Ages, phrase we shouldn't really use, but it's a, it's a useful shorthand, as a Viking. At another point, he imagines himself to be married to a 
Key. So that, that, that's um, a sort of mythical seal creature from Scottish mythology. And he has various other adventures as well. And it's a really beautiful book. It's got a kind of dreamlike quality. So I'd want to take it with me onto Desert Island because the thought of never being able to access, again, the kind of dreamlike quality of this book would be too, would be too painful. So that would be what I would take with me. And I'd spend, I'd spend eternity on my Desert Island reading of the, 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 dream, the dreamlike adventures of, of the young protagonist of Beside the Ocean of Time. Well, I think you'd certainly be well entertained with that selection. And we actually have an episode <laughs> that explores Silkies here on That Shakespeare Life. Mm. It was it was mm. in context of our episode on unicorns and other fantastic creatures that anyway, I'll link to that in the show notes for you as well. So you can learn more about those. Well, Alan, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I, I mean, I'm an academic historian, so working on lots of academic research. Mostly I'm, I'm focusing um, on crime and punishment in early modern Scotland. That's my big focus at the moment. But what I'm really excited about is a project I've just finished, which is write, which is to write a comic about Scottish history. So we've we, I've been cooperating with uh, a local artist in Dundee to produce a um, a comic, which is a short retelling of uh, a particularly salacious Scottish criminal case from the 1690s. That's just finished and will shortly be published by History Scotland magazine. So if any of your readers are interested, if your listeners, I should say, are interested in um, in a Scottish history comic, one will be available through History Scotland shortly. And that, that was great fun writing that thing. And I think hopefully readers will find it um, a kind of unusual, but also very entertaining way of, of telling, a, of experiencing a, a hitherto rather unknown story from Scottish history. That sounds like it combines all of our favorite things. You have the <laughs> 17th century history. It's all about Scotland and it's in illustrated form. What's not to love? <laughs> Absolutely. We'll place links to Alan Kennedy's work in the show notes for today's episode. So you can make sure to go and find the comic along with other resources that he's mentioned for today's episode. Alan, thank you so much for being here today and taking us through the history of the Marian Civil War and exactly what geopolitical issues were going on for Shakespeare's lifetime and helping us understand those a little better. I thank you for being here. Thanks very much for having me. As always, there are visuals that go along with our conversation today, including some links to those pamphlets that we discussed and even the casket letters, because we have more information on that in the show notes as well. We have packed the show notes for today's episode with all of these extras, and you can find all of these things, including the links to the research that Alan recommends you check out at CassidyCash.com slash episode 299. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 299. If you're an educator in Shakespeare history, or you are just a massive history enthusiast who likes to learn all you can about what it was really like to live in the 16th and 17th century during the life of William Shakespeare, then consider becoming a member here at That Shakespeare Life. Our membership arm is called Experience Shakespeare, and it is a collection of hands-on history activity kits that let you or your students try out a piece of Shakespeare history for yourself. We have games, recipes, and crafts, including 16th century Tudor soap balls, the card game of naughty which shows up in Shakespeare's Two Gentlemen of Verona, and even how to make your own iron gall ink, along with at least a dozen other activity kits, and I'm adding new ones in the membership regularly. Each kit comes with a video tutorial, supply list, and step-by-step instructions that let you complete the activity at home or in your classroom. All of our activities coordinate with Shakespeare's plays and with specific episodes of our show, so you can hear from the world's leading experts while you're trying out this activity for yourself. And it makes it a really great drag and drop idea for adding into your lessons about Shakespeare's plays. If you'd like to learn more and sign up today, you can join us inside Experience Shakespeare, where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. 
Patrons of our show really power the experience here at That Shakespeare Life. They help us keep the lights on in the studio, and they make it possible for us to bring the best history research about the life of William Shakespeare right to your earbuds every week. If you would like to be a part of supporting our show and get an insider's perspective on the making of our show, including the opportunities to submit topic ideas and questions you'd like to see asked on the air, then consider becoming a patron today. You can sign up at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. And don't forget on Patreon, there is a coupon for 40% off. Our patrons get 40% off experience Shakespeare. So definitely if you're an educator looking to take our activity kits into your classroom, along with our podcast, you will want to take advantage of that coupon. And it's right on the main page there at patreon.com. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.